Hey, welcome to Access. John here. I recently read a quote that says it doesn't matter how rich, talented, educated, cool, or attractive you think you are. How you treat others ultimately tells all. Much of the time we put our focus in the wrong place. And I believe today's passage of scripture is going to challenge what we see as most important, especially in church. Because it doesn't really matter how great we think our church is, how we treat others ultimately tells others everything we need to know about us. So grab a Bible and turn to John chapter 2, verses 12 through 25, because this message is entitled, Relationship is Greater Than Religion. What is it that you prioritize? Relationships or religion? Years ago, there was a big campaign push promoting that Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship with God. But the truth is, is that if you're a follower of Jesus, Christianity is both. Religion can't be removed from Christian churches. Religion is unavoidable. You know, we all do religious things, even if we're not a Christian. A religion is a specific fundamental set of beliefs and practices that are agreed upon by a number of people. Even atheism is a religion because they too have beliefs and practices. You cannot escape religion. And I don't know why would anybody would want to. I mean, where would we be without our beliefs and practices? James says in James 1.6, A man must ask in faith without any doubting, for he who doubts is like the surf of the sea, uh, driven and tossed about by the wind. Or in a more common expression, Malcolm X says, A man who stands for nothing will fall for anything. I, I believe that's true. We must be solidified in our beliefs or else we will believe anything. So beliefs are important. Well, what about practices? Can you imagine a person coming to faith in Christ without baptism? Jesus himself commanded us to baptize in Matthew 28, 18, 18 through 20. What about the practice of prayer? Could you imagine having faith in the Lord and abandoning prayer? Jesus himself taught us that prayer is necessary in the life of every believer. You see, religion isn't evil and unnecessary. James, the brother of Christ, continues in his letter saying, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God our Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their time of distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Good religion focuses on relationship. Religion isn't just something that dead churches do. It's what every follower of Jesus does. So why is there this big push to eliminate Christian religion and instead focus on just relationships. I think that people that promote this ideal aren't considering the full weight of what they're implying. It's impossible to abandon all belief and practice and still follow Christ, because part of those practices are relationships. But also I think that people that promote this ideal of removing religion uh, they're unable to verbalize what's really bothering them within mainstream churches. I think that what they're trying to verbalize is this. We're tired of watching the church promote religious policies, practices, and procedures over relationships with God and people. And in their frustration, they attempt to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We as the church, though, cannot do ministry without policies, practices, and procedures. We have to have a set of doctrine. We have to have beliefs. We have to have practices. We have to have meetings. We have to have leadership. We have to have a budget. 
We have to be organized and we have to make decisions. However, we cannot allow these things to supersede the real reason why we operate as a church. In other words, we're going to run into frustration when we begin to prioritize religious beliefs and practices over relationships. Well, what should make us believe that relationships are more important than beliefs and practices? Well, if there's one thing that Jesus showed, it was that relationships trump religion. I mean, he was constantly butting heads with the Pharisees and Sadducees and the teachers of the law over issues, saying things like, man was made for the Sabbath, not the other way around. When the Pharisees and scribes began grumbling against Jesus because he was eating with sinners, Jesus responds, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go for the one which is lost until he finds it? Jesus was prioritizing relationships over religion. Well, how can we know when our priorities are getting out of alignment? How can we know when religion has been promoted over relationships? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, I want to spend today continuing in the book of John, and I want to look at a pretty known well passage of scripture. It's the passage we often refer to when questioning um, whether or not it's a sin to get angry. And it's when Jesus got angry and cleansed the the temple. Now, um, this story is found within the book of John, chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. But we're going to begin today looking at verse 12, because we didn't cover that verse last week. But before I go into this passage, I just wanted to make mention of a debate that critics often make about this story in John and, and the other synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John puts this event at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record that this story happened at the end of Jesus' ministry. So which gospel writer is wrong? Well, I think the simplest explanation is that they are all correct in that Jesus cleared the temple twice, once at the beginning and again at the end. Another thing to note is that Jesus is not a stranger to what was going on in the temple. In other words, I don't think this is the first time Jesus saw what was going on. In the book of Luke, we see that Jesus was first taken to the temple when he was only eight days old to be circumcised and dedicated to the Lord. We also see in Luke chapter chapter 2 verse 41 that his parents took him to the temple every year and when he was 12 they accidentally left him behind so if your mother ever accidentally left you at the grocery store when you were a kid and and they had to come back and get you you can go ahead and forgive her because if it happened with a perfect child Jesus it could naturally happen to you perhaps even intentionally but I digress according to Jewish customs there were three annual celebrations that Jewish men in particular were commanded to attend. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, which commemorates the Passover and the Exodus of Egypt. The the Feast of Weeks, which commemorated Moses receiving the law. And the Feast of Assembly, which commemorates the renewed covenant the Jews made with God. Three times a year they would attend these celebrations. And at the very least, Jesus went to the temple to celebrate the Passover every year year at least every year so jesus had been to the temple countless times only this time after he had begun his ministry we see jesus do something a little bit out of character let's read this passage we're going to start with verse 12 john chapter 2 verse 12 says after this after he turned water into wine jesus went down to capernaum he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there a few days verse 13 the passover of the jews was near and jesus went up to jerusalem And he found in the temple that there were those selling oxen and sheep and doves, and there were money changers seated at their tables. 
and he made a scourge of whips, or a scourge of cords, and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was said, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when, the, when he had raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing the signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Father God, I just ask um, that you reveal to us your truth in this scripture and that you help us to visualize what it is that Jesus was doing and why it was just so incredibly important. God, I ask that you speak through me and that, um, that your spiritual truths might just be illuminated in our hearts and in our minds, that you would um, eliminate all distractions and all barriers, Father, that we have, and that most importantly, importantly that we, we, we would allow Jesus to come in and make necessary changes in our hearts because he has the ultimate authority. We love you, and we ask you to just guide us and direct us to this message and all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, this passage of Scripture is especially helpful when trying to discover when we get our priorities out of line. Uh, this passage can show us that religion has become our priority when worship is commercialized. Now, just a special note on chapter 2, verse 12. Uh, this verse doesn't seem like it makes much sense. Make, makes much sense why John would include it in his gospel. However, the reason why this is important is because we get to see that this is the last time Jesus spends with his family. This is the last dedicated time that Jesus has with all of his siblings and his mother in, under the same roof. So this is important because his relationship, not only with his mother, is changing, the cha same is true with his siblings. We know that from the other Gospels that Jesus' brothers and sisters don't recognize him as the Messiah until after he's resurrected from the dead. So this meeting probably wasn't a comfortable one now that Jesus had begun his ministry. His brothers might have even despised him a little for crowding their house with all his disciples. Whatever the case, Jesus and his disciples moved on from Capernaum, where his family lived, and went to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, when Jesus got to the temple, Scripture says that he found merchants selling oxen, sheep, and doves. He even saw money changers seated at what Scripture says at their tables. In other words, the high priest gave them designated places inside the temple for changing money. Now, as I stated earlier, during Passover, Jews would come from all over to worship at the temple. This was one of the many, uh, one of the three major feasts that they would come and celebrate. So when they attended the Passover, they were instructed to bring an ox uh, or a sheep to sacrifice for their families. Now, if a man or woman couldn't afford that, if they were poor, they could use doves instead. Now, because several families traveled large distances, 
it was inconvenient to bring this livestock along with them, so they would purchase these animals for sacrifice when they arrived at Jerusalem. So business was booming in Jerusalem three times a year. In addition to this sacrifice, in Exodus chapter 30, verses 14 through 15, um, everyone who is 20 years old is ordered to com- uh, and commanded to pay a tribute to the Lord at half a shekel each. Now, according to scholars, a shekel uh, in today's market is considered to be around $550. So for us, if we were going to make this, um, this sacrifice, we would have to pay a tax, a half shekel, which would be about $225 a person. Now, that's not an unreasonable amount, but it's still a considerable enough sacrifice for us to make. I mean, it's not unreasonable like, oh man, I'll never afford that. But it's still, I mean, $225 is a lot of money, especially whenever you start thinking about each person in your family that's over 20. Now, if our priorities are in the right place, we would be looking ahead for this tax, and we, w- we would understand that this is a necessary amount that go- I'm going to have to give, and, and there's, there's going to be a time and a place where I'm going to have to give this. So allowing money changers and livestock salesmen to come into the outer court of the temple was most likely originally considered to be a convenience for those who are arriving to worship the Lord. I mean, you don't have to get it outside of town. You don't have to go to you know, the other end of the, the city. You can get it and, and make the sacrifice, and it can be quick. So, according to, to Jewish historian, uh, this Jewish historian Josephus, um, that these these high priests they were they were getting their priorities out of line, not just in religion, um, but that, um, for example, he says the high priest Annas, the one who um, who Jesus, whom Jesus was brought before and questioned by, he allowed his family of five sons to dominate the temple market. This family was consumed by their love of money, and they were hated by the general population because of it. Because these high priests saw a perfect opportunity not to align people with the Father, but to make money. Now think about it. They could reject livestock livestock that families brought from outside sources. And, And they could sell their, quote, sanctioned livestock at a ridiculous amount. There wasn't really even anything stopping them from saying, well, we'll buy your, you know, your worthless uh, animal, and and you can have one of our sanctioned animals, and we will turn around behind your back, and we will sell your animal as a sanctioned an- animal later on. There's nothing stopping them from doing this. Now, the Jewish missioner records that um, at that point, the price for one of the birds. You remember, you could you could you could sacrifice birds, uh, uh, doves, if um, if it was too expensive or if you're poor. You, you, could, you could sacrifice these birds as a sin offering and as a, bo- a burnt offering. So, But the Jewish missioner records that at one point, the price for these birds was so high that nobody could even afford them because they were asking 10, even 20 times the amount that they should have cost. Not only that, but they had to bring this half-shekel temple tax with them. And the Jewish high priest would only accept Jewish or Tyrian coinage because of its high weight in silver. So if a Jew came from a foreign land and they would have to exchange their foreign money into the money that the temple would accept, um, they would have to exchange and they would have to pay an exchange rate to do this. Now, I don't know if you've ever exchanged money into a different currency, but if not, let me give you some advice. If you ever go to a foreign country and you have to exchange money, never do it at the airport because that is the most convenient place. And if it's convenient, the exchange rates are going to be terrible. These priests had the people by the jugular. 
Now, they, they weren't selling Super Bowl tickets here. Keep that in mind. They were talking about how to be in the right relationship with God. If a Jew was unable to make this sacrifice for themselves and were unwilling, uh, unwilling or unable to pay the tax, they were still considered to be in their sin and an enemy with God. So because of the love of money, these Jewish priests prioritized religion and money over relationships. This shift of mentalities most likely didn't take place overnight. It probably took several years to get things, for these things to get this bad. Notice that Jesus didn't seem to have a problem with their commerce necessarily, but where they were making these transactions. The people say, uh, the Bible says that Jesus uh, made a scourge of cords and he drove them all out of the temple. Notice it says that he drove them all out with the sheep and oxen. So the question is, if Jesus made a whip, was he whipping not only the livestock, but the money changers and the livestock merchants as well? And if so, wasn't that a sin against these men? Well, in verse 15, John says that Jesus drove them all out. And I did a, a quick little word study. You might be surprised, you may not be surprised at what I found. The Greek word for all is pantus, which means all. So all here means all. Jesus drove them all out of the temple area. And from Scripture, what we see is that Jesus isn't necessarily respecting their property. He turns over the tables. He pours out the money. He even gets kind of ugly with the ones selling the doves, and he says, get these things out of here. This is my father's house, not a place of business. Now, what we can deduce from this strict behavior from Jesus is, uh, I believe we make a safe assumption, that Jesus very likely wasn't being that quiet, meek, little baby Jesus that some people tend to imagine here. Jesus was upset. If he was whipping them, which we don't, we don't know for certain, but if he was, they deserved it. Because Jesus knew what was at stake here. Worshiping the Lord is not some kind of business arrangement. Now, in our churches today, we could jump to the extreme and talk about the televangelists who are making hundreds of millions of dollars off of charitable donations to their organizations, which is an obvious sin against the Lord. But instead of focusing on that, I, I want to focus, I want to get a little closer to home and focus on, on how we might view finances in the local church. Now, let's face it. Having a local assembly, a local church, it's going to cost money because nothing in this world is free. Ministry costs money. A aside from, from helping people who are in need, we have power bills, we have water bills, we have sewer bills, and we have expenses that we have to pay. We have uh, insurance that we have to pay. We have five people on staff, not counting the nursery staff. We have departments that each have expenses for ministry. We, with, with charitable, without charitable donations, we are dead in the water and we would cease to operate. However, we also have to be careful not to separate money from faith. I love what a, a man named Agur the Oracle says in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 through 9. He says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is in my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and still and profane the name of my God. 
In verse um, 17 in this passage, his disciples remembered what was written in Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me. The word zeal comes from the Greek word zelos, which means jealousy. Jesus said it best in, in, in Matthew 6, 24, when he said, nobody can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. We have to be careful. Because God is a jealous God. He wants our full commitment. He doesn't want us to become a commercialized church. I'm going to tell you, commercializing churches, it is a slippery slope. The truth is there's several aspects of greed, not just financial. And I'll confess, I have to regularly check myself because I constantly slip into commercialized church mode. And I don't do this by focus on money necessarily. I, I focus on, on wanting to be, uh, to, to be this commercialized church by bringing in the professionals and, and to ensure that our worship experience is better than all the other churches around. Now, this isn't so much about money as it is about numbers because we want our church to grow. And in our world, a pastor isn't considered to be successful unless he's growing the church in number. Who wants to hire a church, a, a, a pastor that's going to run off the whole church? No, we want to bring in believers, not run them off. But we have to be careful here too because that's putting on the focus where it shouldn't be. It's putting the focus on the number of people and not the relationships with those people. We're not a business trying to multiply salesmen. We're a family trying to bring others into the fold which means that numbers cannot be the focus of our church. If we're reaching the lost and making disciples, we will see more people. But we can't view them as another number. We have to see them as a family. And anything else is another form of greed. How can we manage the responsibilities of the ministry and not turn out like the high priest in this story? Well, for all of those who struggle with greed like me, there's an excellent way to combat it. It's done through sacrificial giving. Not only of our resources, but of our time. Of our comfort. Sacrificial is the key word here. For example, my, my wife and I, we, um, we tithe regularly. Now, when we began tithing, it was a huge sacrifice for us. I mean, that's 10% of our salaries. We could have certainly used that for something else. However, tithing for us isn't really sacrificial anymore. It's become a routine. It's included in our budget. We don't miss that money anymore. So for us, sacrificial giving requires us to go above and beyond. And this isn't so the church can have more resources. I mean, that's a good thing. It's, in, it's to ensure us that we have the correct view, the resources that God has entrusted to us. We, we, must, we must view this in the proper context. God isn't concerned about our money. He's concerned about our hearts, the way that we feel about our money, the way we feel about our time. What do we do and dedicate? The way that we feel about our comfort. It's forcing ourselves to answer the question, 
How can we give of ourselves to serve the Lord? You know, this looks different from, for everyone. But here's a pretty good rule of thumb. If you feel like doing it, it's not a sacrifice. To ensure that our worship isn't commercialized, we can't put things like money and comfort and the number of people that we have up on a pedestal. Because when we do, religion, not relationship, becomes our priority. You know, we can also know that religion has become our priority when our worship becomes exclusive. The, um, the temple that we read about in this passage, it had several divisions in it. It had one area called the Holy of Holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And it could only be entered once a year by one of the high priests. Another area um, was where only the high priest could enter to light incense to the Lord. Another area was sanctioned to be where the sacrifices were made, which only Jewish men could enter. Another division separated out the women's court, which is the furthest Jewish women could enter the temple into the temple to worship. And finally was an area marked out called the outer courts, uh, it was also known as the court of the Gentiles. This is where non-Jewish people could come in and worship the Lord. Well, where in the temple do you think that the merchants and the money changers were allowed to set up their shop? You think it was in the Holy of Holies, where only one high priest could enter once a year? No. Do you think it was where the incense was lit? Probably not. Do you think it's where the, 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 only the, the Jewish men would come could, and could offer their sacrifices to the Lord? No. Do you, think, do you think it was probably where the women were allowed? I'm willing to bet that the most likely place these high priests would have allowed the, the, the merchants and the money changers to come into was the outer court or the court of the Gentiles. Now, if you were a Gentile that's you and me, and you wanted to worship the Lord, keep in mind that we would only be allowed to enter into the outer courts to worship, even if we converted to Judaism. Now that would be really difficult to worship the Lord alongside the bleat of oxen and sheep and the haggling of money changers and the changing of coins. It would be pretty distracting there, don't you think? And oh, by the way, watch your step or you might put your foot somewhere undesirable. These high priests weren't interested in helping the Gentiles be in the right relationship with the Lord. Their faith was exclusive. It's starting to make sense how Jesus could rush in and be upset as he was. Did you know that we as a church, we can fall into the same danger? We too can isolate ourselves from a lost and a broken world who needs to know the Lord. It's when we become focused on the, quote, way we do things and neglect what's, what's going on and what others need to be, to be reached. We become exclusive when we put our needs and desires above the needs of the lost. Do you know what a dysfunctional family is? Do you know what the definition of a dysfunctional family is? A dysfunctional family is, is when the emotional needs of one person are promoted above the emotional needs of others. 
In short, everyone is focused on the good of one individual or one individual's concerns instead of the needs of many. It's extremely selfish, and that's what makes it dysfunctional. It is very easy for us as a church to fall into dysfunction and become exclusive. Because we prioritize the way that we want to do things, what we enjoy, because we're the ones that hear, and we don't look outward. We don't focus on what others are going to need to find faith in Christ. We cannot neglect the needs of others. Because when we do this, we promote religion over relationship. We can also know that religion has become our priority when we focus our worship on a program or our worship is focused on a program. Now I'm going to skip a little bit of scripture and come back to it in a second. For now, I just want to talk about the last part of this passage where in verse 23 it says that um, several people observed the signs that Jesus was performing during the Passover feast and they became believers. But in the next couple of verses, in verses 24 and 25, it says that Jesus did not fully entrust himself to them because he knew what was in them. The word entrust comes from a Greek word um, which means to have faith in or, or to, to give oneself over to. This means that Jesus didn't have a complete confidence in these men and women who were surrendered over to following him. Now later on, after Jesus fed the 5,000, it says in John chapter 6 verse 15 that Jesus... Uh, it says, so Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountains to be alone uh, by himself. Jesus recognized that some of these same people that, that say that they're coming to follow him here, Jesus recognized that the heart is deceitful and that often people come to him in faith because they have their own agendas. Now, this doesn't mean that they weren't saved, just that they were immature in their faith. They came to Jesus with a plan of action to accomplish a specific end. By definition, they had a program. But Jesus regularly refused to be a part of it. We as a church cannot fall into this same cycle of misplaced focus. Sure, we have things we want to accomplish, for example, we might hear the myth that 50% of Christian marriages fail, which, by the way, isn't at all true. And then we decide that it's time to change that number, so we, we design a marriage seminar program. We already have an end in mind. We want to reduce the rate of divorce. And so we establish a program to accomplish that goal. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a program. We just can't be a church of programs. Nor can we decide what those programs are going to be and then invite Jesus to participate. If there's going to be a program, we need to ask the Lord what that program should be. Lord, break my heart. Show me what it is that we need to be doing. Because I can guarantee you that Jesus' focus won't be on how many programs we're running so that we can feel good about ourselves, but the spiritual condition of those who attend it. You see, we in church, we want something definitive, especially through our programs. We want to know how many people attend Sunday school. We want to know how many decisions are made at youth camp. 
Our association wants us to report on how many baptisms we perform each year. And the reason why is because these numbers are concrete. They tell us how successful our programs really are. But you know what? You can have a lot of people in Sunday school and still have a lot of lost people. People that don't understand what's going on. People that aren't being discipled. You can have a lot of hands being raised up at youth camp. A lot of people come back saying, I gave my life to the Lord. But in truth, they don't understand one aspect of what they just said. We can perform lots of baptisms. And the meaning of baptism can be completely lost on people. They don't tell us how successful our programs are. They're just something concrete that we like to report. We need to consider that the things Jesus prioritized, they can't necessarily be measured in concrete ways. Jesus didn't put his focus on how many followers he had, but on the condition of their hearts. Jesus regularly checked the disciples for how much faith they exercised. The condition of a person's heart, the measure of a person's faith, these aren't things that can be measured at all. But they are far more important than how many programs we're running. The end result. Let me put it this way. What some might consider to be successful isn't necessarily successful in the Lord's eyes. And vice versa. Jesus prioritized relationship over religion. And in this passage, the Jews came to him and demanded that he showed them by his authority how he was able to make these changes. They wanted him to prove his authority, his authority by performing a miraculous sign. All the prophets who had authority could do miracles. So Jesus, we want to see a sign. We want to see a miracle. Show us your authority. And Jesus says to them to des destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now notice that Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry knows exactly what's going to happen at the end. Woo, that shows a sovereign God, doesn't it? John says that he and the other disciples, they didn't even really have any clue what Jesus was talking about and didn't even remember that he had said this until after he had risen from the dead. Later, Jesus was questioned um, before the high priest and, and accusations were made at him against him. And, and, and this statement was one of the ones, one of the accusations that they made. He said he was going to destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. They showed in this accusation that they did not understand what he was communicating. John recognized that Jesus wasn't talking about a Jewish temple, but the temple of his own body. And what I think is most interesting about this passage is, is that it sounds as if Jesus is saying, you guys want a miracle, but all you're getting is my resurrection from the dead. I think this is interesting because that's truly all a person needs. I would challenge everyone to know not only what they believe, but more importantly, why they believe it. And if a person wants to strengthen their faith or discover their faith in the Lord, all they have to do is investigate Jesus' greatest miracle, his resurrection. Because throughout all of history, throughout all the many religions and important people, only Jesus has accomplished this feat. 
That gives him the ultimate authority that he can make whatever changes he deems necessary on behalf of the Father. But more importantly, it shows us what Jesus prioritized. Jesus shows us that he prioritized relationships over religion and the destruction of his own temple. What is most precious to you? Think of it this way. If your house was on fire, it's being consumed by this inferno of flame, what would you rush in to save? Besides my wife and children, there's not much I'd rush in to save. Why? Because all that can be replaced. And I don't want to put my body at risk. My flesh is important to me. But Jesus sacrificed his own body to save us from the fire. Jesus was crucified on a cross. And then he proved his authority by being resurrected from the dead three days later. Jesus went through this to show us what was most important. Relationships. Namely, with us. We have to be careful not to prioritize the wrong things during our worship. Because if one thing is apparent from this passage, it is that Jesus will come in and he will tear up what we put on a pedestal to show us what's most important. We must focus on being in the right relationship with the Lord and in the right relationship with others. Everything else is secondary. That's primary. That's core. That's key. I'm going to close today by reading a passage of Scripture which I hope will solidify this point in your mind. Matthew chapter 22 Verses 34 through 40 says, When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends the whole law and the prophets. That sounds pretty cut and dry to me. What about you? Hey, thanks again for listening. We pray that God blessed you through this message and has given you a clear direction for your life. Please remember to download our church app by searching FBC Rungi in Google Play or iTunes. And remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss another message. If you have any questions about today's message, you can contact us via Facebook or Twitter or use our website. Until then, we hope that you share in our vision to help people take root, grow, and bear fruit. And if so, then let's get out there and get to work.